This is The Rounds Table. Hey, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for tuning back in to another great week on the show. I'm excited to have Dr. Kevin Venus back with me today. He's a fellow in General Internal Medicine subspecialty program here in Toronto. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot, Kieran. I'm uh, happy to be back for round two. As you may know, I'm Kieran Quinn. I'm a general internist and health services researcher here in Toronto and director of the Rounds Table. So we're ready to rock. One quick thing before we do is a plead to our dedicated listeners. The best way, funnily enough, for us to expand our listenership is to have great ratings on iTunes. And it's been a while since anybody's rated us. So if you're listening to us, you like us or you dislike us or you just listen for whatever reason, please do rate us on iTunes because it is truly helpful for us to grow our ever-expanding reach across the globe. All right, Kevin, let's jump in. Introduce the article that you have chosen for this week. Sure thing, Karen. So I chose to talk about the Merino trial, and the long-form name is the effect of Piperacillum tazobactam versus Meropenem on 30-day mortality for patients with E. coli or Klebsiella pneumoniae bloodstream infection and ceftriaxone resistance. Quite a mouthful. This was published in September 2018 in JAMA by Dr. Harris and uh, his research team. Excellent. Well, I was excited to see this trial published in JAMA. Mainly because its name reminds me of a nice soft Italian sweater, a nice merino wool sweater, but maybe there's more to it than that. So Kevin, tell us what's the bottom line for this article. That's right. It's getting cool outside, so everybody should cuddle up with the merino trial. Ah, there it is. So the bottom line for this article is that among patients with E. coli or Klebsiella pneumoniae bacteremia and ceftriaxone resistance, treatment with Piperacillum tazobactam did not result in non-inferior 30-day mortality compared to meropenem. Okay, that is a complicated sentence. Help us unpack that a little bit in the context of why this trial was important to conduct. Yeah, so it is a bit of a complicated sentence with some double negatives in there. And so basically what the bottom line means is that the trial did not demonstrate non-inferiority. And we can maybe talk a bit about what that means a bit later on. I thought that this was an important trial to talk about, and I was also happy to see it published in a high-impact journal, because uh, as we've talked about, or you have talked about previously on the show, high-quality infectious disease trials are sort of few and far between. It's a relatively underpublished area in the medical literature, but it's a topic and subject area that spans multiple specialties and is important for sort of everybody to keep up to date with. Antibiotic resistance is, I think, poised to become one of the major healthcare issues over the next few decades, and we desperately need uh, well-organized and conducted trials to help guide our use of these precious resources. All right, and so tell us what they did to actually answer this question. And It sounds like the question is really, should you use Piptazo or Meropenem in bacteremia with those particular bugs when you have ceftriaxone resistance? Yeah, that's right. And so there's been previous studies that have mostly been observational in nature trying to assess rather the use of a beta-lactam and beta-lactamase inhibitor uh, combinations such as Piperacillum tazobactam was adequate treatment for these sort of gram-negative organisms with ceftriaxone resistance. And it seems that that should be the case based on the pathophysiology of resistance. However, the area was relatively understudied. So this trial was a non-inferiority trial, as we mentioned. It was a randomized control trial, but open label, and took place in 26 hospital sites in nine countries, mostly centered around Australasia area, although I will point out that the only two Canadian patients were enrolled at Sunnybrook Hospital. Yay, Canada. (laughs) Okay, Kevin, tell me then, 
of all of these countries, including our two Canadian patients. Who were these patients? How did they include and exclude them? Yeah, so the inclusion criteria for the study were uh, adult patients who had at least one positive blood culture for uh, these two organisms, E. coli or Klebsiella ammoniae, that was demonstrated to be ceftriaxone or cefiroxime resistant. And patients had to be randomized within 72 hours of the positive blood culture collection. So very broad, very straightforward inclusion criteria. In terms of exclusion criteria, Obviously, if they had a documented allergy to either a test drug or antibiotic class, they were excluded. If the patient had an expected survival of less than 96 hours, if they were being treated without curative intent, if there was a polymicrobial infection, if they had previously been enrolled in the trial, if they were pregnant or breastfeeding, or if there's a requirement for additional antibiotic therapy. Okay, and then let's sort of mix things up here a little bit. Tell us about what the actual patients who they ended up enrolling looked like. Yeah, so the average patient or typical patient was a 70-year-old individual, and approximately 50% these enrollees were male. To give you a sense of the types of infections that these people had, about 25% were designated as hospital-acquired infection, and about 43 to 44% were community-acquired. The source of the bacteremia was also tried to be understood in each case, and the majority of patients had a urinary tract source. In the Piperacillin tazobactam group, this was about 55% of patients, and in the Meropenem group, this was about 67% of patients. The other main sources of infection were intra-abdominal infection at 18 and 14 percent respectively, and then many other potential sources. Okay. That sounds, you know, I would say what I would be most familiar with when I'm looking after patients. I think one of the key highlights here is just to point out to listeners as we're going through is that we're not talking about empiric treatment with either of these two very broad spectrum antibiotics. You have to know in these patients that they're resistant to ceftriaxone. And perhaps some of these individuals were already started empirically on ceftriaxone, as most of us probably would do, and they may be getting sicker over time as we then compare the two drugs. So let's actually just find out exactly what they did to unpack that a little bit further. Take me through that, the intervention and the comparison groups here. Yeah, so that's a that's a great point, and I think one of the major uh, discussion points about this study. So how they organized the intervention was that after the individual had a positive blood culture for one of these organisms, they were randomized in equal proportion into either the Piperacillum tazobactam or the Meropenem arm. And then after that point, they received the study drug for a minimum of four days and up to 14 days to be decided by the treating physician. They had repeat blood cultures drawn on day three and any other day that they biked a fever up to day five after randomization. And then on day five, there was a decision point and the treating physician could decide to continue the allocated study drug to stop all antibiotics or to change to some sort of step down or different antibiotic agent. I think the point that you raised about the empiric antibiotics is important, and they actually gave a definition of how they understood this term. So empiric antibiotics in this study meant any antibiotics that were given in the period prior to enrollment, and they were deemed appropriate if they were given less than 24 hours after the initial blood culture collection and the isolate was susceptible to them. Okay, so you're trying to back in time at the empirical choice and deem the appropriateness based on whether the bug was sensitive to that empiric antibiotic or not? 
Uh, yes, that's uh, that's the way that they tried to phrase it. Yeah, I don't know if appropriate in my mind is the most appropriate term because, you know, there's appropriate decisions with the information you have at the time. How may you know that that person's going to have a ceftriaxone-resistant urinary E. coli when most of the population would have a ceftriaxone-sensitive E. coli until after the fact? Yeah, that's right. And actually, if our listeners do a bit of a a deep dive into the supplementary material for this study, this study was really organized in a pragmatic manner that was meant to mimic real-life practice, which is, I think, a strength, but also leads to some concerns about this initial empiric therapy. And 13% of the patients who ended up in the Piptazo group actually received a carbapenem empirically, compared with 15% of the patients who ended up in the miropenem group also received a carbapenem initially. Okay, so there's some cross-contamination there that's going to bias towards a null, so to speak, which in a non-inferior tri- non-inferiority trial actually may be important. All right, so Kevin, let's push on. We're getting sidetracked here, as we as I sometimes have am, am liked to do. Uh, what were the primary and secondary outcomes? Sure. So the primary outcome was all-cause mortality at 30 days after randomization. And the collection of secondary outcomes all had to do with either a clinical or microbiologic resolution of infection in various permutations. Okay. Well, we've kept people brewing long enough here. What were the main findings? Take us through those outcomes and what they found. Sure. So I think it's important to mention that similar to some previous studies discussed on this podcast, this was a study where the Drug Safety Monitoring Board stepped in and the trial was actually stopped early. They suspended the trial uh, once 391 patients were randomized, pending the analysis of the 30-day follow-up for these patients. And after they had done that, they determined that it was highly unlikely to demonstrate non-inferiority of Piptazo based on the observed mortality rates thus far. So the trial was stopped. In terms of the primary outcome, there was a 12.3% 30-day mortality of the patients in the Piptazo arm compared to a 3.7% mortality rate for the participants in the Miropenem arm. This corresponds to a risk difference of 8.6%. Wow, that is quite a substantial reduction in mortality. Uh, What about some of the secondary outcomes? Yeah, and so in terms of the secondary outcomes, without getting lost in the weeds of all of the numbers, I think that the takeaway message is that there are higher rates of both clinical and microbiologic success and infection resolution at day four in the miropenem group, and lower rates of infection relapse or secondary infection or complications such as C. difficile colitis in the miropenem group. Okay, so we're talking about a almost 9% absolute risk reduction in 30-day mortality favoring miropenem over piptazo. That's a number needed to treat of about 10. That's pretty remarkable. So take us through the discussion. Let's make sure that we're not going to overpromise the benefits of miropenem, or we are, depending on what you think. Yeah, so it's quite a striking result, and especially one when I first read the paper that didn't really fit with my idea of biologic plausibility for this study because piptazo has a beta-lactamase inhibitor within the drug and you would think should be adequate to treat a ceftriaxone-resistant organism. And so when we talk about the results of this study, I actually want to give a lot of credit to Dr. Jesus Rodriguez-Beno from Seville in Spain. He's an infectious disease physician there and has a a fantastic tweet thread where he discusses in detail a lot uh, of takeaway points for this study. There are a couple of things that I think to consider, and, and one is that the acuity of illness for these patients was actually uh, lower than expected. 
They risk stratified patients for the severity of the bacteremia using a validated risk score, and only 10 of the 390 patients met criteria for a high-risk category. Also, almost 41% of patients had resolved signs of infection by the day of randomization. So they'd already clinically improved substantially after receiving empiric antibiotics. And the overall mortality rate was just under 8%, which is lower than expected based on previous data for this subject area. However, I think that you know a lower acuity population should probably bias towards lower mortality rates overall and potentially dampen an effect between the arms, which obviously we didn't see here. So that's interesting to consider. Okay, so that is helpful that we have some unexpectedly low-risk patients. What else was either yourself or Dr. Banyo interested in? So um, I think the other interesting point is that it's important to find out what these patients actually died from. And one of the differences between the two arms that present in Table 1 is that there's higher rates of immunosuppression, higher rates of indwelling catheter lines within the Piptazo participant group. And um, the, they didn't actually discuss how many patients had metastatic cancer. If you look in the supplements, again, for this patient group, it seems that most of the mortality actually did not stem from the initial infection, but was from their extensive medical comorbidities. As well, looking at the survival curves, the separation really starts to come after 10 to 15 days, which is after most of the antibiotic courses had been finished suggesting again that maybe it wasn't the initial bacteremia that was causing the mortality. Okay. So I think you've raised some really important points that, in my mind, roll back or at least, you know, condition the significance of those findings. So let's put this all together for our listeners. What do you think as far as whether you're going to accept these, you know, 9% mortality difference as the absolute truth or you're concerned and you're not so sure? Yeah, I think that there are some concerns that I have about the participant groups, but I think really what this study highlights most for me is that there seems to be a disconnect between the worlds of lab medicine and clinical medicine, because I don't quite understand how the sensitivity reports can be so discordant with what we're seeing at the bedside, at least in this study. And so I wonder if there's maybe some room for further work looking at the difference between in vitro and in vivo susceptibilities. Um, I think that it's important to realize that this is not a study that's trying to inform our decision about empiric antibiotic choice, and that it's really trying to uh, tell us how to adequately treat a bacteremia that's already established and diagnosed. And so I think moving forward, at least in my practice, I will still feel comfortable prescribing Piptazo for these sorts of bacteremias because it doesn't seem clear to me that the mortality is being driven by the bacteremia itself. If I have a critically ill patient who does have a cephalosporin-resistant uh, gram-negative bacteremia, then I think, you know, in that situation, it may make sense to use a carbapenem. Yeah, and I think I completely agree. I, I would say that based on the results of the Marino trial and understanding of prior work in this area, that I am not going to, as you said, rightfully so, not going to change my empiric practice. And also following blood cultures, I think that it may lean towards using a carbapenem and more in the context of what we've seen recently about the risk of acute kidney injury with piperacillin tazobactam, 
compared to miropenem and, you know, different slightly population, but there's some harm risk there. And uh, I'm not sure if there's a huge difference we see in this trial or others about unsafe practices use with miropenem itself. So I may lean towards uh, miropenem now over piptazo if in the setting of the patients that we see here in the Miro trial, but I don't think it's going to cause a major shift in the way that I practice. And I got to be honest, I don't see all that often a whole host of patients who aren't already treated empirically up front with one of these two agents with sepsis in the context of these agents. And it's usually the results of the culture and sensitivity testing that I'm narrowing my antibiotics on rather than broadening them. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it would be great to get some input from some people in the antimicrobial stewardship world, the lab medicine world, and infectious disease physicians to see how they're interpreting this trial as well. There it is, listeners. If you're one of those groups or have an interest and expertise in this area, please do email us, tweet at us, get in contact with us in some way. We'd love to know your thoughts and experience in this area. Okay, Kevin, let's move on to the second article of this week. All right, Kieran. So why don't you tell us what study you chose to talk about? Well, Kevin, I'm going to be cogent and concise about the article that we talk about because we spent a good amount of time on the first one. This article is a trial from the New England Journal of Medicine that's comparing the use of PPIs in individuals on dual antiplatelet therapies and looking at GI bleeding in this context. This was published by Dr. Deepak Bhatt and their group in the New England Journal of Medicine in November of 2018. I can't believe that we haven't already looked at all the permutations of antiplatelets and PPIs, but here we are. Fantastic. Hey, it gets in the New England. Apparently we haven't. <laughs> so what is the bottom line for this study? Well, Kevin, this was a randomized control trial, just over 3,700 individuals taking dual antiplatelet therapy, and it found that prophylactic use of proton pump inhibitors reduced the overall risk of gastrointestinal bleeding and did not appear to influence the efficacy of clopidogrel through a potential interaction, as we did not see apparent increases in cardiovascular events that have been suggested previously. Overall, the application of these findings in a broader clinical context are unclear, however, given how low the event rates were in this trial and the lack of measured known adverse effects of proton pump inhibitors to inform the safety use of them. Okay, very interesting. And we're certainly seeing more and more indications for dual antiplatelet therapy coming out in the literature. So this sounds like a great question to ask. Um, why did you choose this article? Well, as you said, we're seeing more and more dual antiplatelet therapy and antithrombotics being used. And in my mind, proton pump inhibitors and antiplatelets kind of go together like a cold beer and a burger. We think you can't have one without the other. But it turns out the evidence is actually typically conducted in individuals taking aspirin. And most of the endpoints in the literature are often more surrogate endpoints, like endoscopic findings that you would see on OGD, rather than more important clinical outcomes like a clinically apparent bleeding, for example. Furthermore, the evidence is actually somewhat equivocal around the interaction between proton pump inhibitors and clopidogrel, and there is some concern that proton pump inhibitors reduce the efficacy of clopidogrel, thereby increasing the risk of cardiovascular events. So the COGENT trial cogently sought to try to assess both the efficacy of proton pump inhibitors in reducing GI bleeding, as well as the safety of their use in the context of co-administration of clopidogrel. Excellent. And after a beer and a burger, I'm often reaching for my own acid suppressant. So <laughs> um, why don't you take us through the design of the study? Yes, Kevin, this was an international randomized double-blind trial taking place at 393 different sites. Wow. 
in 15 countries. It occurred between January 2008 and December 2008. Great. And uh, why don't you give us a sense of who the patients were? Very straightforward, quite simple, which is nice. They were adults who were using clopidogrel therapy and aspirin therapy and were anticipated to use that for at least the next 12 months, like, for example, in the context of somebody who had an acute coronary syndrome and underwent placement of a coronary stent. These individuals had to be discharged from with hospital within 48 hours of randomization. And as you might expect, the exclusion criteria, you know, if you were on prior anticoagulation, or if you had erosive esophagitis or gastritis, if you had known varices or prior gastric surgery, all things that are going to change your underlying risk of significant GI bleeding, you are excluded from the trial. Okay, so that makes sense. A pretty broad and sensible inclusion criteria. Uh, Okay, great. How did they set up the intervention? Straightforward as it sounds, so they used a combination of clopidogrel at 75 milligrams and omeprazole as the PPI, which was a 20 milligram dose, and they compared that with clopidogrel alone. All patients received aspirin. So you have everybody on aspirin, and then everybody gets clopidogrel, and one group gets the addition of omeprazole. Okay, so straightforward. How did they set up the outcomes? What were they looking for? So there's sort of two ways to think about the outcomes. There's the gastrointestinal efficacy endpoint. That was time from randomization to the first occurrence of a composite outcome of upper gastrointestinal clinical events, which they defined as overt upper GI bleeding, bleeding of presumed occult gastrointestinal origin with documented decrease in hemoglobin of at least 2 grams per deciliter, so a significant drop, or more symptomatic uncomplicated gastroduodenal ulcer seen on endoscopy. Now, their cardiovascular safety endpoint was the composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, coronary revascularization, or ischemic stroke. So these are your two balancing uh, events where you're looking at the efficacy of the proton pump inhibitors and that potential interaction and loss of efficacy of the clopidogrel. Interesting. And I admit I did not know about this idea of PPIs affecting the efficacy of clopidogrel before reading this study. So what were the findings? So let's look at the patients first, 3,761 individuals. Uh, The median duration of follow-up was 106 days, so actually not all that long, which is important because you got to follow people long enough for them to have a cardiovascular event or even a GI event. Uh, Nevertheless, the maximum follow-up was 341 days for some individuals. Typical patient was a 68-year-old white man. He had prior PCI and an acute coronary syndrome, and had multiple cardiovascular risk factors, as you might expect. Turns out only 60 to 70% of the patients were actually taking dual antiplatelet therapy in the study at baseline. Okay, and so what did they find? So the primary outcomes at six months, um, 1.1% of individuals had a GI bleed in the arm randomized to a PPI, and 2.9% in the placebo arm. So that was a 1.8% absolute risk reduction, corresponding to a number needed to treat of 56 to prevent one bleed. That occurred, if you look at the separation of the timing, typically within the first two months. So that makes sense that your PPIs are reducing your risk up front. And most of those bleeds were actually occult bleeding. And that raises the question to my mind, how clinically relevant is occult bleeding in this context? And when you're balancing that against the need for dual antiplatelet therapy and the, you know, cost and potential side effects of PPIs, I'm not so sure. The cardiovascular safety event did not see any difference. You saw 4.9% of individuals have that cardiovascular composite in the PPI arm versus 5.7% in the placebo arm, and the confidence intervals were wide. There was no difference there. 
Okay, interesting. And to me, those seem like fairly small event rates, Kieran. Uh, does that affect your interpretation of this study? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for one, I think it, the generalizability of this study is a little bit concerning. So, you know, almost everybody in this trial was under the age of 75 years old. And older individuals who may very well need dual antiplatelet therapy are probably at higher risk of bleeding in the first place. So, um, you have a lower risk group to begin with, and you're seeing low event rates to detect differences. You're also following them for a short period of time, and so you may not be seeing those differences or meaningful differences over time. So I think that's a really important point that you bring up, Kevin. All right. Are there any other interesting points or caveats about this study that you thought? Yeah. So one thing, you know, just about the difficulty and cost of running these trials that we cover, you know, week by week on the rounds table. Unfortunately, the sponsor lost funding and actually the company ultimately went bankrupt and no longer exists. So the trial ended early because of this. That led to a couple of issues that further complicated the uh, interpretation of the results that we've already discussed. First of all, you overall, you lose your power and your confidence in the results that you are reporting because your sample size is smaller than was designed to detect those differences. And we see that in the confidence intervals around the cardiovascular safety measure being quite wide. So we don't actually really know, even though there's quote-unquote no difference, whether it's truly safe or not from the results of this trial, and i.e. whether there is no increased risk of cardiovascular events. Also, the short follow-up, as already mentioned, you know, you may not be following people long enough just to have them develop these cardiovascular events. So there's a bit of concern, I think, from that context. Okay, great, Karen. Thanks for taking us through that. So how are you going to apply this to your practice, if at all? Well, I think, Kevin, if you put the biological plausibility and the, you know, wealth of evidence around PPIs in GI bleeding, we know that they reduce the risk of GI bleeding. And I think this trial confirms that, yes, if somebody's on dual antiplatelet therapy, we are reducing the risk of their bleeding. However, what is the clinical significance of this reduction counterbalanced against the potential interruption of dual antiplatelet therapy in people who are identified to have, you know, drops in hemoglobin? Your number needed to treat is quite high, sort of 56 people. I think overall the way that I would interpret this is, I would use PPIs in the setting of dual antiplatelet therapy in individuals who I thought were high risk for bleeding, and you might have various ways to calculate their bleeding risk overall. And I would use these in individuals who are at lower cardiovascular risk, again, using the same kind of risk stratification idea to be sure that there's no potential interaction. I think if an individual doesn't look like that, then I might avoid using prophylactic PPIs in those uh, types of people. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable take. And we're learning more and more about the potential side effects of PPI use and administration in the general population. So important to keep that in mind. Yeah. All right. Well, a couple of, I think, very interesting discussions and they're important trials. And I'm not sure how much they've changed our practice, but it's a really good exercise to sort of reflect on these rather than take them at face value when reading the abstract. So worthwhile is what I'm trying to say, Kevin. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Kevin, what's caught your attention this week in the medical news? 
Well, I admit this is not a report from this week, but this is something as I emerge from post-Royal College year, I'm getting caught up with everything that happened in the last year. And so I found this fascinating preliminary communication in JAMA, actually, that was published in February 2018, published by Dr. Swanson, and it's titled Neurologic Manifestations Among U.S. Government Personnel Reporting Directional, Audible, and Sensory Phenomena in Havana, Cuba. This sounds like something right out of the X-Files, which is why it caught my eye immediately. What this is, is a short communication detailing a case series of 21 U.S. diplomats who were stationed in Cuba and all came down with a puzzling, undiagnosed constellation of neurologic symptoms, all after experiencing some auditory phenomenon that was described sometimes as a high-pitched whistling noise, a low-pitched rumble, or, you know, that sound that nobody can describe when you're driving down the highway with the window half open. It's a fascinating read. All of the patients had neurologic testing done, MRI imaging done, and evaluation by neurologists, ENT specialists. And the bottom line was that they displayed problems with balance, cognition, sleep disturbances, headache, all of which seemed sort of in keeping with typical concussion-like symptoms. Of course, there has been no obvious trauma for these people, and it's a bit of a mystery right now as to what's going on. So it's still stuck in the realm of X-Files. Fascinating. Well, I chose something near and dear to my heart. This is entitled The Vegetable Clause. So for all of you practicing clinicians out there, I want you to think to yourself, how many times has a patient said to you when you've been trying to clarify their goals of care, either in the clinic or during a hospitalization event, they respond to you, well, I wouldn't want to be a vegetable. Kevin, have you heard that before? Uh, Yes, many times, actually. Yeah, me too. Like, shockingly so, I can think of so many individuals. And so this is what the authors call the vegetable clause. And they purport that many clinicians and healthcare providers who hear somebody, you know, a patient of theirs utter the vegetable clause, will erroneously conclude that their preferences for CPR are such that they would wish to have DNR or do not resuscitate, not undergo those types of interventions. However, this is where this article is quite fascinating. Actually, the authors purport that the patient is telling you about their post-CPR preferences for care, not their actual preferences for receiving attempts at CPR. And so the article goes on to really talk about the idea that perhaps we as healthcare providers need to have more fulsome discussions about both an individual's preference for attempts of CPR, but also preferences for what type of care would occur and how long you would carry on for post-CPR. And so I thought the vegetable clause was a neat way to think about that kind of an issue. That's a really interesting point that these authors raise, I think, and, you know, underlines the importance of having truly informed discussions with our patients as it pertains to end-of-life care. Absolutely. So, Kevin, another great show with you on it. Thank you so much for coming in and bringing all your insight, and we hope to have you back sometime soon. Great. Thanks, Kieran. It was fun. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, 
audio editor Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director Grace Zhao, segment director Shaliza Halani, host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the rounds table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.